Hi everyone, my name is Wendy Muse, and I am the creator of the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project Podcast. Before I get started with the episode, I just wanted to apologize for any issues with sound quality on my end. Um, I conducted this interview on the afternoon of Thursday, August 1st. Um, however, I'm conducting the interview from Brazil, and for some reason, every time I spoke during the interview, the sound is a bit pixelated and strange. So feel free to fast forward through the times when I'm talking. Um, Kumar's and Richard, thankfully, are both very clear. Anyway, on with the show. So hello, hello, everyone. We're here with the umpteenth edition of the Left Pocket Project podcast. I don't know what number we're on. I think we're on like 25 or 26. Uh, but this episode is once again a special episode where we are talking about the lovely and awful Democratic debates for the primaries of 2020. And today we actually have, of course, Richard, as always, my co-host. Hello, hello. And... Our special guest today is Kumar Salahi. How's it going, Kumars? Hey, it's going great. Happy to be here with you, Left Pocket Monsters. <laughs> um, Kumars, <laughs> can you tell the audience, I'm sure most of the people who listen to Left POC know about you, but uh, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? No, absolutely. Great way to kick off episode umpteen. Uh, I <laughs> am, of course, you may know me as the host, co-host with Rokea Shamsuddin of Delete Your Account, the podcast about organizing and shit, politics and pop culture. Uh, you can, of course, find us not only on all of your favorite podcast platforms, but on Patreon, patreon.com slash delete your account. Not to jump the gun on that plug, but just to get it out of the way. Uh, we have all sorts of free content as well as bonus episodes with, you know, people who are who are comedians and a little more frivolous content like that. But uh, my general shtick in life is I am a PhD student at Berkeley. I do research in the German department on like philosophy and Marxism. And uh, yeah, I used to be an organizer with Students for Justice in Palestine, but I've since sort of fallen out of that. And, you know, I try to still use the principles and the wisdom that I gained in that period of time in the interviews that we do on delete your account with organizers and trying to make sure that people are not losing hope and looking practically at even the most intractable of problems. I mean, it's good to have you on, especially because of that experience, considering that Palestine did not come up one time in the debates last night or the night before, if I'm not mistaken. Um, no, just, I think we barely so. got 10 minutes of foreign policy discussion in the entire six hours. Right. Yeah. It's a little bit of a disappointment to say the least. Uh, but yeah, on that note, as I mentioned, you know, before in the previous uh, version of session of the debates, we don't do this like a traditional debate breakdown. So we tend not to talk about winners and quote unquote losers or um, who really gave it to another candidate so much as we do. That's the right. Issues everyone and some won. of the things. Yeah. Every <laughs> everyone <laughs> won in terms of being terrible. Um, but I think mm -hmm. in, 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 
on the basis of our sort of mission here, we're really focused on the issues and kind of where we, if there's any hope, as you mentioned, uh, that these candidates will deliver on certain issues, if at all. Um, and perhaps who, I don't know, who framed certain issues in a way that, that gave us some sense of, I don't know, if you will. Um, so yeah, why don't we start with Richard actually. Oh, and I'm sorry, I should add that I have a bit of nausea today. Um, I'm nauseous and I'm having some like quote unquote morning sickness, even though it's like technically all day because I'm pregnant. So I apologize to anyone if I'm kind of quiet this episode, but y'all might be happy about that. So <laughs> I'm going to let Richard and Kumars really lead uh, this episode, but I'll pop in here and there. Uh, so yeah, Richard and Kumars, why don't you guys get us started off in terms of what your overall assessment was of uh, both nights of the debates and kind of perhaps if you didn't see something covered, what you would have liked to have seen covered and how you think the candidates would have taken that particular issue. Uh, I'll hop in here first with my overall impression. I think uh, from the nights uh, without like declaring winners or losers or anything, I think uh, the stronger performers that I saw were uh, Bernie and Warren and to a degree uh, uh, de Blasio in night two. But uh, I think uh, I noticed uh, an improvement in at least the rhetoric around uh, Bernie's answers on race and reparations, although still inadequate in my opinion. And uh, that Delaney made for a good liberal punching bag that kind of pushed out some uh, more liberal talking points or even, uh, you know, more rightish talking points and saw how uh, either Warren or Sanders would confront or contrast those with their plans. And uh, that the by the time they got to race in the Green New Deal, it was about an hour and a half into the first night. So I, I think the viewership and the attention level had significantly dropped by that point. And I, my general impression also just from interactions with the, the public with the debates is that this wasn't that heavily watched by people outside of the political Twitter, Twitter sphere and so, so forth. So those were kind of my overall impressions. Go ahead. Yeah, I thought Warren and Bernie both did excellent as well. And I think it was smart of them to basically tag team. It was heartening to see that Bernie is actually a really good debater because I think the first debate left me with the impression that maybe he's a little subdued or frankly, I had a little bit of doubt just about whether the format suited him, but he was right there. Uh, Warren had some great lines. I think that both of their polling is going to go up as a result of this, not necessarily uh, taking from Biden as we've seen in the past, because he seems to be somewhat unstoppable in certain regards with the constituency that's supporting him right now. But you mentioned de Blasio, and he might not really come up again. So I just want to get this out of the way. I hate de Blasio. He is so fucking <laughs> yeah. annoying. And, you know, he was on the second night, the only sort of properly left wing candidate in a certain very technical sense, because he was arguing for the positions that Bernie and Warren would have been arguing for if they were there but you saw for example in the healthcare discussion where he was the only candidate on stage defending single-payer healthcare, that he is literally too annoying for it to matter like 
you know, he used his opening statement to make the case that he was the most progressive choice for president by basically explaining to the audience what New York is and that it's a very big city and it's very hard to run it. And like, you wouldn't be able to do that if, you know, you, I guess, weren't progressive, which is, of course, ridiculous. Uh, since the biggest fascists in the country have been able to do it pretty, you know, successfully by certain accounts. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ended with talking about how Donald Trump is the real socialist, except for, uh, you know, it's socialism for the rich. So the same line that, I don't know, you've heard from everybody, from uh, the most milquetoast liberal to Newt Gingrich. And he gave me the impression, really, that it would honestly be better if he weren't there so he could stop making every left-wing position he articulates sound less attractive and popular than it really is. Yeah, in, in some ways it felt like I, before the debate, it felt like as if it was set up in that way. I know the, the drawings were uh, random and such, but it did feel as though night one was set up to be, uh, you know, cannon fodder for against uh, Bernie Sanders and Warren to test out some lines and to see how they would defend against them. And then uh, the opposite with uh, Biden and Knight two and de Blasio to kind of That's set right. up to look like the, the, the lunatic on the left, you know, de Blasio <laughs> John Delaney of mm -hmm. Knight two. Exactly. Exactly. Uh. That, that, I got to go ahead and Wendy. No, I was just sighing. <laughs> like I'm <laughs> depressed about this. Right. Yeah. I think that though, I mean, it's interesting what you said, Kumar, is about de Blasio, because I'm a former New Yorker. Like, I didn't grow up there, but I lived there for a long time. And I voted for de Blasio the first time around. Um, I had left the city by the time he was the second time. But, you know, one of the things that he really campaigned on was this idea of like, you know, New York being a bifurcated city and having two sets of people, basically the, you know, the 99% and the 1%. Um, and he really focused a lot during his first mayoral run um, on a sort of, I mean, it, it wasn't that deep. It wasn't nearly as deep as what we're seeing now in the rhetoric, but it was very much this kind of idea of we need to create a better type of, we need to have income equality in New York, but then we're not anywhere close. And he talked a lot about affordable housing and things like that. And then basically like once he was in office, he basically, I'm sorry to keep saying basically over and over, but he showed his true colors and wasn't that great on those issues. Affordable housing was pretty much dropped. Um, and then on top of that, there were so many instances of police brutality, including of course the Eric Garner case. And we heard protesters last night, which I was very thankful that they were there uh, just to keep reminding the audience that like this guy isn't really who he says he is. Um, and I think it's important that, you know, people from New York are vocal about the kinds of things that de Blasio has failed to do as mayor. Because to me, you know, I mentioned last night um, in passing when I was talking to Kumars, I believe actually this is like last night, but I said that basically it feels like someone who had, dip their hands in shit and then they're like, okay, now I'm gonna cook dinner, but they didn't bother to wash their hands. And so it's sort of a strange run to me because there's so many things going on in the city that are unresolved. And yet he has the audacity to run for president as if none of those things are happening, you know? So it's, and I think his answer, just to get more specific, his answer in particular last night about 
the Garner situation because he was asked about that by not only other candidates, but also the commentators, like the the hosts. Um, his answer was basically, well, we're going to do something in 30 days. <laughs> it's like he's had several years to do something. And obviously the Garner family has not received justice. Pantaleo is still, an, you know, an officer, practicing officer. Um, I think he had paid leave after he murdered Eric Garner. So it's not like anything ever really happened to this guy. It's not like the culture of the NYPD has changed. Um, and even now they're threatening to, they're threatening physical violence upon people who throw water on them because that's the way some New Yorkers have kind of been protesting police presence in their neighborhoods. They just yeah, have been throwing hilarious. water. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, they're acting like, you know, the the people are shooting at them or something and that's not the case. So I just think that um, de Blasio is a, a sort of, he's an example artist to be frank because he's afraid of the police unions and he's afraid of these chiefs that basically run the city and so i don't know i don't know why he's running for president um and i also think that a lot of these i call them kind of extraneous candidates but it seems as though they're just there to take time away from actual an actual discussion of issues actual discussion of of possible solutions absolutely i mean i remember i was living in new york as well during the mayoral election at the end of bloomberg's third term and one day, Chris Hayes' old weekend morning show, Up With Chris Hayes, had all the Democratic primary candidates on. And you're right, de Blasio seemed like the most progressive candidate. And mm-hmm. I'm not really sure exactly what happened after that, because I kind of tuned out when I moved to the West Coast. But everything I've heard, I mean, just looking at these examples of one thing people were chanting last night was fire Pantaleo, right? Fire uh, the guy that killed Eric Garner. It's... Uh, the absolute, you know, height of, I think, disingenuousness for de Blasio to present himself as such a progressive after presiding, you know, with very mixed results at best, you know, over this, you know, extremely oppressive city government with its, you know, basically uh, quasi-military police force. Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent point that I saw kind of raised a few different times. Uh, I saw that also come up a bit between uh, Booker and uh, Biden, just as far as when you were in these posi- in the position to do something about the violence that you're, the, like we'll say police violence in this case, the, that you were ineffective or did nothing. And Booker's response was uh, rather lackluster. And we know uh, de Blasio as well is, uh, is lackluster in that the stop and frisk for Booker or the the stop and frisk that kind of continued even after the the constant it was ruled unconstitutional but it was just refined and reformed in a way that it was more easily able to deny that it was unconstitutional that we see that the the rhetoric is empty from these candidates that when they're in the positions of power to do anything uh, that nothing gets done or very little gets done and they have a long list of excuses and of reasons for why they never get done, but uh, it essentially renders electing them pointless in that if the point is to get them to address these issues, all they do is talk about them and and effectively come up for with reasons or excuses for why they didn't do anything and kind of dissipate the energy to get things done by saying, well, you know, I've got to win this seat. Otherwise, we won't get anything done. And then, then we were right back where we started again in, in the next election. I think that was 
really, really obvious in the second night's debates because it was primarily like what we would consider, you know, fairly establishment style candidates. Even of course, and there were more women, things like that, but a lot of their platforms um, and their backgrounds as well are more establishment leaning. And so it was interesting to kind of see them try to battle it out and seem more progressive than the other, but it was like, it was, I mean, it was like you, you hit one, you punch the other, but it's sort of a wash because like Cory Booker going after Biden about criminal justice, but then knowing what's going on in Newark and, you know, like his sort of abdication of his responsibilities, even when he was mayor on helping revitalize the city with the exception of like revitalizing yeah. it, of course, in favor of like big banks and shit. So like, they're all just, it just so felt like everything shit. was a wash. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> the, the closest I came to rooting for somebody that I hate was when Tulsi Gabbard went in on Kamala Harris for her record as a prosecutor and all of the honest to God, like just unforgivable shit that anybody mm -hmm. would have been justified bringing up on that stage. And that moment ended up being really important, I think, because Kamala didn't really know what to do about it. The people that don't care that she was a cop are not going to be shaken by this. But, you know, it's clear that somebody had to make this line of attack for long or it was going to or it was going to just go without go without mention. It's also just weird how unprepared some people seemed, including Harris, actually, mm -hmm. when these issues were brought up, like and I and I think that's what what I mean when I was talking about you know it's sort of like the audacity that you don't even consider the problems within your own record before you run for fucking president. I mean, like, part of my French here, but the reality is that they don't they don't even worry about that. You know, like I'm I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, before I write an article or before I do a presentation or whatever, I have to have all my ducks in a row and I have to have all these sources and all this information, all this knowledge. I have to be prepared. And yet they're running for the highest office in this country and none of them seem fully prepared even about their own backgrounds. And I think part of it is like, it's almost as if they have some sort of mass scale cognitive dissonance where they, they just blank out on what they've done. I mean, because the look on their faces is like, as she was, for example, Karis was was shaking her head as Tulsi Gabbard was literally stating facts about her record, like that are well documented. I mean, these are things that aren't made up. You know, it's not conspiracy theory. It's like in several magazines and newspapers. So it's just bizarre that they don't seem to have any sense of personal accountability uh, or even just basic housekeeping before they run for office like this. Yeah, I think part of why that might have been is because a lot of the things that they were getting confronted on were things that they were doing in the interest of the party. And so it was they, they didn't expect to get confronted on them it within the party, but because of the kind of outsider status that someone like uh, Gabbard has or some of the other candidates or the desperation because of the polling, they had, those issues did come up and did get confronted. And so like... Uh, I think there was one moment where it was Gillibrand and Biden and Biden was basically going on with the, well, you were there next to me saying all this mm -hmm. was good right up until we start. And it's like, that is weird for both of them because they were like, Jill, like their, the, their ideology individually as a person is so vacuous that then like, they don't even make the, like make the realization that, oh, wait, you know, people are going to look at me standing next to this person, you know, commending them this whole time. And then now me standing next to this person 
criticizing them for the same thing and wonder where where was this criticism then and, and like it seems as though that uh, i think uh, uh, i'm not sure if you mentioned here but the especially kamala harris has this uh, audacity to just just deny and just you know this isn't the truth don't google it because if you do you're going to find out very quickly that what i just said isn't accurate or true and i i feel like there was a lot of that going on as well in that uh, a lot of the candidates thought if they just just said oh no that's not true that they could rely on people not looking into it themselves and and just taking their word for it and so between the two aspects those two uh, made those two kind of lanes uh, that the doing these things in the interest of the party and then uh, that the people confronting it are outside of those part outside of the party i think played a large role in why they were so kind of taken back and why sometimes the 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 punch lines didn't land exactly how they thought they would and some of them i think backfired on some folks as well because it, in the circles that they run in those lines make sense and land but the audience was mm -hmm. diverse enough that that some, the people were like wait you can't actually be serious with that like i think uh, gillibrand's um moment was one of those moments where everybody's like wait <laughs> you actually don't have anything to say everybody's like dying to get in and to say anything you find they just they brought you in without you having to interrupt and, and you got nothing you just got an um <laughs> yeah like these sorry about the sorry about the drilling going on in the background <laughs> it's it's people are doing work out here okay uh, so it sounds we. like I'm you're landing try, a plane <laughs> i'm i'm gonna try to mute my mic when i can okay no worries but um I but did you want to you know, start yeah yeah i i i just want to say i think the greatest cognitive dissonance was definitely on the right of the party and uh in particular among people like i mean i think biden frankly seemed confused the entire time and yeah. he is incapable of really processing the criticism that's happening now for the first time towards uh the obama record maybe he's justified in thinking that because he it's you know it seems like those positions were just accepted as as liberal and and you know nobody really questioned them outside of activists that Obama was very condescending towards during those years. And he seems quite shocked now that it is the establishment consensus even that some cosmetic changes have to take place to the sort of policy program that was put forward during those years, uh, just to make it look less conservative. Mm -hmm. And after being grilled on his record for like three hours, he still is doing interviews where he's like, I don't know why they would say those things about my friend, you know, President Barack <laughs> Obama. And even at the at the debate, Delaney, who was playing Biden in a way on the first night, uh, made this just cringeworthy uh, attempt to draw a parallel between the, the you know, radical left of the party and Trump, where he was like, this is an exact quote, Trump wants to put up a wall and beat up on immigrants. Most of the people running want to put up economic walls and beat up on President Obama. And so oh, Obama is this Obama. victim now uh, <laughs> because everybody is 
trying to do better than the you know center right diet republican administration that is finally coming under serious scrutiny now that Biden and not Obama are uh you know is the one running on it and that's always been the message right i mean even during obama's administration i remember the constant refrain was well the republicans don't let him do anything and so you know they're they're presenting all of these impediments to progress. And that's why he can't do it. And he has to engage in this like 28 dimensional chess all the time. And that's why he comes across as conservative, but he's really not. And like, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I just remember even when he was president, there were always so many excuses. And, and this was including when he was, you know, interrogated by people who were his voter voting body, you know, like, it's not like these people were coming out of nowhere. They were people who had, um, campaigned for him, who had supported him, who basically put him in office, as you mentioned, you know, activists that he pretty actively antagonized. And so I think it's it's bizarre that we're continuing with this um, myth of like Obama victimhood, um, when in fact Obama's doing just fine right now. I mean, he's a multimillionaire. He's got his own foundation. He's written some new books. You know, like there's a lot going on with his family that they're going to be fine. And I don't think, you know, I think if Obama felt so victimized, he would probably say something about it even now. I think he would be more vocal um, on that front. And, you know, Obama's just kind of pieced out. He's not even endorsing anyone this time around. I mean, maybe he'll endorse for the general, but he's not going to endorse uh, for the primary. So it's kind of interesting to see his name constantly evoked as if he were just president and not Trump. Right. Well, I think he has made noises that he's not particularly happy with the progressive direction of the party and he did just share a ross douthat column on oh, Lord. Uh, on twitter <laughs> so i think we know where obama stands he's just not really trying to be the target of anything right now I, yeah. I yeah. impression i don't know with the parallel with uh, obama and uh, illegal immigrants as a uh, delaney put it uh, perhaps there was some sort of subtle appeal to birthers going on there uh, like <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe like the. I think that there is kind of an interesting point about the uh, the centrist wing of the Democratic Party and the constant appeals to the you know Reagan Democrats or the the independents and so on and so forth. And then what we what re- recently just came out was the private discussion with between Nixon and Reagan in the early seventies, where Reagan refers to uh, people in African countries as monkeys, and so like. I think part right. of what's going on is this whole trend of, you know, Trump is an aberration, but an inevitability of, of the United States. And that what he's done is ex- like put in who our faces expose what's always been slightly just beneath the surface, except for people that are paying attention. Uh, but like the racism and the, the racist types of policies and where it comes from. So it's like all those appeals to, to Reagan Democrats, in my opinion was a way to say we want to appeal to racist white people without talking about that we're appealing to racist white people. And so like uh, the the centrist wing and uh, when we see talking about immigration, especially, but even uh, Sanders had to say, you know, oh, you know, so, so use the phrase, you know, strong border security, you know, which is essentially the same rhetoric that was used for the Democrats to go ahead and fund more of uh, Trump's concentration camps on the border. And so this kind of uh, the appeal to the, to the independent and to the centrist and to the, to the Reagan Democrat is often 
a, an appeal towards pe the the type of people that don't want to confront racism that you know acknowledge that is ex that exists but see it more as a interpersonal issue between individuals rather than a systemic one that still you know results in as at managed to come up on the debate stage uh, during the busing discussion that schools are just as segregated and neighborhoods are just as segregated if not more now than they were before we tried to actively uh, desegregate and so uh, i think all of that kind of fits in together into when we're trying to oppose uh, when the democratic party is trying to come up with an opposition figure against trump biden falls so short because he is very much in that camp of the reagan Dem democrat and the ones that are trying to figure out ways to make racist policy uh, appeal to black voters and I think the party itself sees his high uh, favorability numbers with older black voters and sees that as an excellent uh, demonstration of that ability. Mm -hmm. You raised something interesting to me because I had forgotten about it because it wasn't really mentioned that much, but education is just like a non-issue this election. I feel like there are not that many discussions about it at all. I remember in the 2016 election, there were at least some discussions. There was a little bit of a debate here and there about college, obviously, but also about K through 12 education and the role of charter schools. Um, and I remember that being sort of a polemic of sorts at one point, because obviously, uh, and I guess now it wouldn't come up because so many of the Democrats, at least on the second night, are advocates of charter schools and received quite a bit of, quite a bit of money from charter schools um, and lobbyists related to those schools. But I just, it's interesting that it's kind of missing. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe because, I mean, do you all think that people feel like the free college or debt-free college discussion has been settled? Or do you all know, do you have any idea why perhaps it wasn't really mentioned that much on either night? Do you guys any, have any ideas about this? Uh, I think it was mentioned at least a little bit on the first night. And mm. that's, I mean, obviously because it's a Bernie and Warren policy, Bernie is, is a little bit better as some people might know, we can get into the details of that, but the, main thrust of it i think is that uh the debate has ossified into the left wing of the party saying obviously this is smart it will get young people to vote for us like actually come out and vote because something concrete will change in their lives if we win and on the other side you basically have abstract references to it but then amy klobuchar in particular seems to have made it her pet issue to say, I don't want college for rich kids. I don't want free mm -hmm. college for rich kids. That Hillary Clinton line about, you know, basically the uh, the waste and, um, you know, unnecessary structural reform that would come with a universal program like that. It's funny too, because like, I mean, I am, I, for a while I had done some work on, um, affirmative action in Brazil at the higher education level. And while this is not the perspective of the Democrats who are more conservative, who are saying basically that, you know, college, free college is going to benefit rich people and we don't want that. It's not quite the same issue. But here, one of the things that happened really long here in Brazil, I'm saying one of the things that happened for a very long time, actually, is that colleges, college universities, the most elite ones are free the state and federal universities. And so usually what would happen is wealthier parents would send their kids to private elementary high school that would then prepare them almost exclusively
exclusively to take these tests to get into college, and then they would get into the free colleges, whereas poor children um, who went to public schools that are you know, terribly underfunded most of the time and um, not don't have a lot of resources, they wouldn't do as well, they wouldn't have the same outcomes educationally, and then they wouldn't be able to do well on the test if they took them at all, because in many cases, kids had to drop out of school early to help their parents work. And so what you would see in countries like Brazil is that those kinds of free colleges actually did benefit wealthy people, but not so much by virtue of being free because of the system that was in place in the lead up to these universities. So while it's a di completely different angle and thing, um, you know, like a different, a different set of perspectives on it, it's something worth considering, at least in the long term. So, for example, if we did get to the point where we had I don't know, elite colleges like Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Ivy's, for example, as free. What would that look like in the long run in terms of how people prepare? Like, would wealthy people continue to game the system? But arguably, they game the system now. So there's always a way for them to end up on top. But it's just something that is always kind of in the back of my head because I, under I don't agree with their, their argument about not like basically shutting down the prospect of free education and universal education because it might benefit some rich people. But I also still have that concern, like, will we get to the point where one day, you know, this might be an issue to come up? But that's it. Um, going forward, I wonder, what are some other issues that you all felt like were missing or perhaps under-discussed um, and something that you wish that you had seen more coming from some of the candidates and perhaps even from the more left-leaning candidates? Uh, I know one thing that did, it kind of got uh, briefly mentioned, but it didn't really uh, turn into any conversation was uh, from a lesser known candidate who was kind of irritating me the whole first night, but uh, Tim Ryan, uh, he did make oh, a point. He's the worst. <laughs> yeah, he, he was terrible with uh, stressing about the unions, particularly without like really kind of getting into the why union healthcare and all that aspect. But anyway, he made a point about uh, China having a 100-year plan, 50, 30, 20-year plans, and how the U.S. lives in a 24-hour news cycle, and our politicians especially uh, at really only see as far as their next re-election, and how that's kind of debilitating for us uh, politically as far as planning, and the currently the only kind of foresight thing that we've got is Democrats pushing uh, this budget deal uh, that they're actually struggling to get Republicans to sign on to which essentially uh, makes it to where Trump doesn't have to worry about the any debt ceiling fights and that the next president is the one that's going to have to deal with what's going to be, I'm sure, bipartisan calls for uh, austerity to make up for the missing money that uh, is a result of both the increased military budget and uh, the other spending that we've had through this time. And so the, the concept of lacking... Uh, kind of long-term planning, let alone any sort of planning that is uh, demonstrative of a philosophy of, you know, planting trees that they don't plan on sitting under the shade of. Uh, mm. I think that is really huge as far as one of the reasons why like, when we talk about something like the Green New Deal or uh, climate uh, projections out to 2040, 2050, it's kind of uh, ridiculous just in that uh, we see, for instance, uh, with the Climate Accord in Paris is, because we don't actually put these things into law and instead we uh, kind of leave them in the executive, the next executive can just come in and completely uh, 180 the course that we're on. And in something like climate change, uh, 
every day or moment or year lost is uh, catastrophic on the other end. And so uh, if like without legislation, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. And I think I don't remember. I thought I had it written here, but I don't remember who said it. But essentially, it kind of basically uh, rose the point or highlighted the point that uh, none of this is going to get passed with the, the, legisl- the legislators that we have now. Like nothing that Warren or Bernie w- was pushing or even some of the uh, just uh, more left-wing centrist candidates were pushing could get past Democrats. It took 60 Democrats to get the ACA passed, which uh, just to, uh, one, more, one more other thing was just that Warren made a point several times to say that insurance companies don't have a God, quote, God-given right to profit, end quote. But they do have a legal right to profit because the ACA wrote it into the legislation that insurance companies were to profit. So it's not God given, but it was given to them by Democrats in the ACA. And so I think the the profit aspect, I think uh, Bernie did a really good job in his opening statement of kind of juxtaposing uh, human suffering and the profiting from it. And then the other aspect is uh, our planning. I would have liked to see more talked about uh how we're failing to have long-term planning yeah you know something that you said about the difficulty of getting things passed through congress that's raised at all these debates when bernie and warren are on stage and i think that warren has learned from bernie's answers because this time around i noticed her talking more about structural reform that's sort of uh i don't think that Bernie said it, frankly, but I I think that that's a very Bernie idea and a motif that he's really brought to the discussion, the idea of fundamentally changing certain aspects of American society being an acceptable goal to have. And secondly, when that question is posed of what are you going to do when Congress stymies you, Warren and Bernie now answer well, we need a mass movement. We need people out in the streets and nothing is going to happen without massive public pressure and, and you know, people's involvement in politics. So I think that's a really realistic answer. It's obviously reflective of a serious plan for change and an idea of what the mechanisms are that are involved there. Um, on climate, I... You know, obviously, Jay Inslee is always talking about climate and you just tune out. I don't think that does anybody any favors when something really some mm-hmm. something really important is championed primarily by someone who is very boring. But Yang really disturbed me because as far as I could tell, his comment about it basically already being too late and then... uh saying that most of the emissions really in the world don't come from the United States and we act like all of the emissions come from the United States. It sounds like climate denial to me. And it's not particularly surprising given that his, you know, he talks about building this coalition of whatever, of progressives and conservatives and libertarians. And it seems like it's mostly fascist, but it's definitely going to include a lot of people who are not excited to take on climate. I think that's very dangerous. I can't wait for his exit because God, what a ridiculous distraction, Andrew Yang. But that was my sort of understanding of the the climate discussion that took place is that it wasn't particularly substantial and that it just broke Mm -hmm. down along the lines of, can we afford it? 
uh, Tim Ryan obviously saying, oh, it's going to hurt, you know, what mm-hmm. miners or whatever the fuck. No, exactly. And, and that's that's the impression that I got from it, too. And then my qualms always are just like, is there any consideration for the global south? No. And then also one of the things that I kind of saw when they talked about it is like, oh, we're going to, you know, manufacture the stuff here. And it's like, well, how? Like, it's like yeah. you realize the, the the emissions improvements that we've made have been largely in part by shipping all of our dirty manufacturing to other poorer countries with less regulations. So if you bring back the manufacturing, you bring back the, the toxicity. And so what, what how, how, <laughs> how? Precisely. And that's Tim Ryan's entire platform, frankly. I remember when he announced that he was running for president back in April on The View, he told this story about how he he was they asked him why he was running for president and he told this story about how his daughter called him crying one day because one of her friends got one of her friend's dads got fired from his like factory job and so she basically just was sobbing and asking him to bring back manufacturing and this guy is obviously just repulsive on all number of levels uh but you know his his idea basically for expanding government programs is limited to my impression was it's some sort of department of like dirty jobs basically with like i guess secretary uh, of dirty jobs mike rowe but he just wants to have a a department devoted to rebuilding our like you know shitty factory infrastructure it's like I, I guess if we're preparing for World War Three, it, it's a practical measure. I mean, like it, it's going to be tough to to manufacture a lot of the things that we might need if we don't have a manufacturing center, and, and it's mostly just empty and hollowed out buildings, which it currently is. So I, I guess I can see that. And with the the kind of climate plans that we saw from the the candidates on that stage, I I, I mean I see massive influx of uh, migrants fleeing catastrophic climate collapse and uh, an inhumane solution coming from uh, the, these groups of people and like that's the future that they're leading us towards and they, they don't really have, they haven't really given us an alternative, they're just essentially banking on people that haven't put enough thought into seeing where this leads us and so or just have a kind of unwitting optimism that somehow you know the robots are going to save us and uh, it's definitely concerning. Uh, uh, I know Wendy mentioned education, and uh, for all the static and everything, the the psychic aunt got uh, Marianne w- Williamson did uh, like make up a, a kind of good point about sort of education. It, it was kind of in that strange way that she communicates, but uh, essentially that it's going to take a deeper understanding of these I- issues in order for us to to move forward. And the kind of superficial rhetorical kind of sophistry that we see from the candidates on on debate stages isn't going to cut it. And I, I think that's a good point. And it's unfortunate. Like, I think uh, several good points were brought in by uh, poor messengers or people with poor credibility on the, on a particular topic. And so it kind of uh, undermined the point itself. But uh, I think just hearing it, can help some people and i guess i kind of had one question that is uh bothering me but i'll wait till we're almost done to just kind of uh, just put it out there because i just curious but as far as uh, one of the other things from the debates that really got me 
was uh, when, and it's kind of gotten a play in corporate media, but uh, essentially when uh, Delaney was trying to lecture Bernie about not understanding uh, healthcare business and, and Bernie said, it's not a business, you know? And it's like, I think that can resonate with people in a way that some of the other wonkier talking points doesn't is that, you know, it, it's really weird to have somebody figuring out whether they'll make more money prescribing you this drug or that drug or and then he mentioned you know they're going to advertise during this and i thought that was kind of the one of the best calls like uh, shot calls uh, of the night was yeah the, the same companies that are you know basically pushing these questions that are being asked by the moderators are also going to pay those moderators salary by advertising during this debate and it, it kind of encapsulates what's really happening. And uh, as some people have may have noticed, it's hard to find a, a full uh, uh, version of the debate because capturing that advertising revenue is more important to this allegedly alleged news uh, station than presenting the information that they captured. And so uh, I think that kind of captured a lot of what's going on in the democratic side of the, the debate. Uh, politically in the country. Yeah, yeah there was Delaney. a lot there. Sorry, go Sorry. ahead. No, please, Wendy. No, go ahead, Kumars. No, 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 go ahead. I'm serious. Go ahead. I was going to say with Delaney, that exchange was quite interesting because it was Bernie answering in, I mean, as clear terms as I've ever heard, that uh, basic question of whether the quality of care under you know medicare for all or single payer is going to be uh is going to be uh, uh noticeable for most people and he was like you know i mean it's possible obviously that some people's uh you know health care will get worse if they're on a government plan uh but you know the basic uh, argument on the republican side is the bill, and this is what Delaney said, that the bill will lower standard of care because it's going to say it's going to reimburse hospitals less. It continues current Medicare rates. So you're going to be underpaying healthcare providers, wealthy people buy healthcare with cash instead of using insurance. And it's going to be a two tiered system. This is obviously, you know, very clever answer. And Bernie's answer always has to be that hospitals are going to save on billing and all of the bureaucracy. Um, and when Delaney replies with this sort of, you know, conservative wonkery, I've done the math, blah, 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 it doesn't add up. Uh, Bernie replies, well, maybe you did the math and you made money off of healthcare, care. Uh, but because he was actually a, 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 a CEO and a pharma or sorry, a healthcare CEO. And Pointing that out, that the guy that is arguing against universal health care, arguing against the the best and most, you know, cost efficient way to do it is actually directly benefiting and has benefited from the way things are now. And the argument for cutting out private insurance entirely is always going to be one about decommodifying a basic human right. So sometimes you have to, you know, honestly, just engage in whatever wonkery you need to, to make that, uh, to make that happen. And 
Delaney also said something else that was very interesting just as they were cutting away at one point when they were talking about cutting out private insurance. He was like, well, you know, it almost seems like they don't care really about health care. This is really an anti-private sector agenda, which is basically like saying, well, this whole thing smacks of communism to me. And I think that's very interesting that the momentum is absolutely with the left candidates when they're on stage. Yeah, definitely noticed that. You feel it. Go ahead, Richard. Oh, I was just going to say is like uh, I mentioned the ACA and the 60 votes that it took to pass and, and uh, mentioned uh, or you mentioned the, the profiting off of the insurance part. And I just remember, you know, the people that uh, fought against a public option in the ACA were essentially the conservative Democrats that then went on to lose their seats or to work uh, for the insurance industry. And so this is a pattern that we can see over and over again, and we see it throughout uh, our political history of, and it's often referred to as like the revolving door of essentially our politicians and private businesses exchanging people to uh, help each other in their own interests and all the time leaving the most of the workers and the people of the country in general out in the cold. And so to see it so kind of uh, encapsulated in a brief debate moment that can be captured again in, in Twitter and spread that way, I think is effective. And uh, I guess one of my lingering questions, and we don't have to address it right now. Uh, well, actually, before I get to that, I did. there's one more thing that I wanted to point out that was, unfortunately, it was uh, Mayor Pete who said it, but it was a point that I think uh, several... Uh, Mayor Pete, who? or no, who's who? <laughs> I'm not gonna guess anyway. <laughs> Bitcoin, I believe, is how you say his name. Yes. Uh, I just but... mean, like, I don't know. I mean, I remember just I don't remember anything about him from the first night. That's why I say who. I'm like, him and Beto are just like, I don't oh, know. Man. It's like they're not there when they're there. It's strange. Anyway, continue. Yeah, Beto was definitely a very like. Uh, you know, old, old version gen, uh, like political robot on that stage and just the inauthenticity just, you know, drip from him. But uh, uh, Mayor Pete did say something I think is important uh, for some of those Democrats to hear and just for, uh, especially just for voters to hear because the, it's not, the talking point's not going to stop, but the, to not fear Republicans, you know, he said he had the line of, you know, if we go for a far left agenda, they're going to call us crazy socialists. And if we go for a centrist agenda, they're going to call us crazy socialists. So you might as well just go. You might as well just advocate for the policy that you think is right. Now, obviously, he's advocating for bad policies, which is separate. Right. Right? <laughs> but I thought that was hilarious because it was like he was defending Bernie and Warren, but not himself. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, it had that yeah. weird dynamic to it. But it was, I think that's a great point that like. Uh, too often, you know, your average or your run of the mill voters are just like, oh, well, yeah, but how are you going to get passed? Or, you know, it's like, oh, the Republicans are going to say that that's socialism. And, and it's like they're going to say what they're going to say, no matter what the reality is. If, if the last few years haven't like broken that through or gotten that broken through to you, then I don't know what will. It's like the Republican Party's talking points aren't tethered to reality. Uh, they, they are whatever they wish to make them and uh, they'll sell it however they need to sell it. It doesn't matter what it is or how disconnected it is from 
people's actual experience and, and it, it happens over and over and you can, there's uh, a million examples but uh for one is the, the spending bill you know it was like they elected trump because they wanted to help rein in you know government spending and of course as all republicans deficit and debt goes up and so the the connections to reality and the talking points are always going to be tenuous if at all existing and so you can't let that limit what kind of policy you're going to advocate. And so that I think was an important point uh, that I don't think all of them wanted to hear because it was so, so, so strongly undermined the arguments that they planned on making or their counter arguments to some of the policies that they have either making on their campaign or on that stage that night. Right. Well, I'm going back a little bit to healthcare kind of, and then I want to segue into something else. But um, one of the things I thought was super interesting last night and the night before was this constant quote-unquote gotcha question where they were like are you gonna give are you guys gonna give illegal immigrants resources you know they were like are mm -hmm. they gonna be eligible for education and health care and all this stuff and it was just absurd like the degree to which they're assuming first of all that undocumented people would even take up that much of the system's resources in that front is kind of interesting, but also just the fact that like people who are fully documented citizens who are born and raised here don't have access to healthcare right now under the system that we have. So like, really, is that your biggest fear? Like you're concerned about undocumented people having healthcare? Like why would you not, you, I mean, the point is you should want everyone to have it because ultimately undocumented, if you're looking at this like a Republican would or like someone conservative would, if it's not just about the moral basis of like everyone needing to have care, right? If you're thinking of it from a business perspective, you should say to yourself, well, undocumented people are also workers, right? They're working in our restaurants, they're working in our homes, they're working in our businesses, they're working on our farms, fill in the blank. And so if they're sick, it takes away from the quality of labor that they're going to perform. It takes, it, it also endangers, for example, potential customers at restaurants or whatever. So why would we want you know, undocumented people to be unhealthy in the society. Just again, this is not, I'm not, not, it's not something that I'm saying, but I'm saying it from like the perspective of someone more conservative. So it's interesting that that kept coming up over and over last night. Like that was the biggest concern for like universal programs that somehow, you know, undocumented people are going to have access. God forbid, you know, it's like so terrible. How could we ever do that? Um, but it leads me to kind of thinking about the ways that the discussion around undocumented immigrants um, was framed uh, on the, during the debates uh, both nights and also how the candidates responded. And I think mm. still in large part, that's a very weak area for all of the candidates. I think, you know, like they kind of are trying to make, and I think he's part of this obviously, but like, I love how on the second night they said, you know, we're going to talk about immigration. Castro, what do you think about that? You know, it's like you immediately go to Castro as if he's the only one Who's like, I mean, I guess he has been the most vocal of everyone on the stage for last night. He has, um, the, of all the he has the most detailed plan. Warren has also has a very good plan, but Castro's might actually right. be the best plan out right now for immigration. Right. But the reason that they went to him is not because of that. I mean, the reason Definitely. they went to him is because <laughs> you know why Definitely. they went to him, and, right? So and it should be said that the reason that they brought up the illegal immigrant taking up welfare state resources question was not i think because a lot of people on the stage are genuinely concerned about that but because right. people in general are sort of concerned about it or when you poll them it seems like a majority of people say no to this question of whether mm -hmm. uh are 
state resources and benefits should benefit uh, undocumented people. And so, you know, I think you hear versions of this argument on the left, too, that, you know, normal people will never get on board with our proposal for a modest expansion of the welfare state if they don't think it's racist enough. So we need to avoid, you know, the drill frameworks, Mm -hmm. language that might alienate real Americans. And, you know, this is a thing in Europe as well. There is a ton of left energy behind this tendency to triangulate on what might be considered cultural issues. Like this isn't a practical question, uh, you know, Wendy, like you said, of can we actually spare these resources? It's capitalizing on the rights momentum in a way by uh, validating its anxieties about immigrants and the scarcity of resources to, to make the left more appealing to people who are, you know, let's say economically liberal or left wing and socially conservative because they see it as uh, an electoral sweet spot. And that's why Bernie replied with, we need strong border protections when they asked him, are you afraid or why isn't your plan going to result in people who are undocumented benefiting from our free health care and mm. uh, or, or incentivizing rather people to come to this country illegally, which I, I understand is a different question. Bernie, Bernie has obviously said that he wants people who are already here to be covered by his plan, but even he has to hedge on that because He's moved away from the whole proposal, you know, or sorry, uh, Koch brothers proposal, uh, open borders nonsense. But I think not philosophically. I think he's more or less just seen where the, the wind is blowing on that issue. And he's decided to be a little bit softer on immigration. Um, going, I mean, not, well, not going back, but just a quick interjection here. One thing, though, that I think could have been an easier answer to that. Would have, that still would have been on the left would say would be to say something like undocumented people still take pay taxes and taxes are what power this healthcare program you know I mean I guess no one likes the word taxes but ultimately they still are technically paying for it and everyone is benefiting from it so it's not like they're just getting totally free like no one's getting technically totally free healthcare because everyone's being taxed somewhere or another even if they're undocumented so like I don't know why that couldn't have just been an answer as opposed to being like, oh, yeah, we're going to we're just going to close the borders and then we don't have to worry about, you know, because that seems to kind of be the shorthand version of what's being said. Yeah, and it was it was clear to me that everybody who was uh, trying particularly hard to dog whistle on the other side talking about, you know, we can't give uh, these people even free health care when they're here, you know, regardless of this taxation issue. Uh, you know, I think they really they really showed their ass, but they got the point across to the people who are legitimately, you know, racist in this way. Like yeah. uh, Tim Ryan had that ridiculous little rant where he was talking about how, well, everybody buys health care in this country. Why don't undocumented people just pay cash for health care? And it's like the most callous. It's basically the Democrat, conservative Democrat version of telling people to go die in the streets. And, you know, I I think that it was very notable. I mentioned before that Biden was 
complaining about the comparisons that kept coming up between Trump's immigration policy and Obama's. And it's really notable that right before he like took great offense to the implication, he had like actually just been outlining the fact that his solution to the immigration crisis is to quote flood the zone with like people, you know, law enforcement that can determine who's, uh, uh, you know, legitimately seeking asylum or not. Of course, we all know that ICE and CBP are great judges of of, of that, <laughs> and also that we should have an immigration system that quote cherry picks the best from every culture because that's what makes america great i guess and they need phds phds (laughs) it strikes me that this is exactly what trump would say Mm -hmm. yeah although would he i mean i don't know i don't know if trump would say anything about phds he would just say shut it down i just thought that was the funniest part of the immigration discussion like he kept it was it was fighting right he kept saying that like they, they, as long as they have PhDs, we want them in our country or whatever. And I'm just like, do you realize like how difficult it is to get a PhD? And I, I don't know, like people aren't, it's the people with PhDs in large part aren't the ones fleeing and like being terrorized in the same degree. I, mean, I don't know. It's just really silly the way that he was framing the whole thing. Definitely. Right. Sorry, guys, that just killed that discussion, my bad. Um, oh, no. No, no. I, I, I pulled up Biden. Biden's fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I picked up on his energy, and now I'm carrying it into this discussion. Um, also, that, that as a funny side note, I mean, that was pretty hilarious to watch in last night's debate where Biden would just stop, like, well before his time was out, like, well before they had to say anything to him, and just abruptly, like, mid-sentence, all of a sudden, it's just like, okay, and that was, yeah, I was waiting that was for a little bit strange. I was waiting for the bell that they had at some of the other debates at one point. I was like, he needs that bell, because everybody's just right. sitting there, like, awkwardly for three to five seconds every time he's finished, and it's just very yeah. strange for television. There's a couple other moments that I just were kind of like that that I guess I should, I'll mention now. One of them was they asked uh, uh, Hickenlooper a direct question about black people, and he just went on about urban, urban this, urban that, urban this. And it's like, well, wait a minute. They asked you about black people. Why are you talking about cities? <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. it just is yeah. that reflexive, you know, well, we're not supposed to talk about black people, so I'll, I'll use the word urban, but it wait. completely <laughs> didn't make any sense in the context of the what, question. What about but. when Mayor Pete was like, Mayor, this is legitimately. Uh, what Mayor Pete said when they asked him about healing, like whatever racial tensions in this country. And he said, quote, as an urban mayor serving in a diverse community, the racial divide lives within me. And I, <laughs> I want to know who told him it was a good idea to say that. That sounds like an opening to a great essay, right? <laughs> <laughs> Written by I mean, maybe somebody who isn't Lily White, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, so I'm aging myself here, but um, being an 80s baby, I remember watching 227 as a kid. It was a TV show that came on. Um, and a woman named Jacques Harry, who used to be an actress on that show, and then she was later like one of the, she was the mom on Sister Sister, which and Tamara Maori again old show but um she she tweeted uh she called him Peter Dolezal which I thought was like <laughs> just kind of funny and appropriate for that <laughs> specific comment you know can you imagine like Pete Mayor Pete with a fro or something and saying these things um 
but it was pretty funny. Uh, yeah, there were definitely a lot of weird moments on both. Um, I feel like more on the second night, though, specifically because of Biden, because Biden was just just so awkward and like out of his element, like completely. I mean, I guess Biden like, is Marianne bringing had gaffs back. Here, but he you is. thought President <laughs> Trump had rendered the concept of the gaff an historical anachronism, but no, Uncle Joe is back. Uncle and Uncle at the Jerry, very end, 30, 30, 30. oh, that was hilarious because it was so oh. obvious what he meant to say. He was, but he says, "Go to Joe 30330. and it wasn't clear if he had any idea what he had just said. No, oh. not at all. Not at all. It was great though. I live for these kinds of moments because the debates. I don't know why, but especially last night's just seemed to go on for so long. And so the, the comedic moments were at least, you know, a little break from the nonsense. Because after a while, it's like, if everyone's only given 30 seconds to reply, you don't, it's not interesting enough for you to stay focused, you know, because you're not really hearing anything. It's just little bits and pieces here and there, but nothing deep. And so I wish that they could do... I don't know, maybe more town halls or if there were like, if they did something where they had like a town hall and a discuss someone to challenge them or if they did maybe, if they had like two on two town halls or something like that, like had, I don't know, a debate or a town hall debate with Biden and Buttigieg or something. I'm just like putting in names here. I don't like those two candidates, obviously, but it would be interesting to kind of see how they do. Yeah, I can't imagine what they in... would debate over. Maybe the size of the <laughs> national service expansion. Right. Like, who is more out of touch here? Uh, me or how you? to appeal yeah, to I Republicans think... <laughs> in both parties. <laughs> right. But it would be interesting, I think, to see them have more time. I think it would be more interesting to see them have more time to really flesh out some of their ideas and then debate one another on in closer quarters, if you will, you know, with a little bit more time. I wish there were some way to do that, but there's so, I think if we had 10 candidates, maybe that would be possible, but because we have fucking 20,000 of them, it's a little bit more difficult to do. Um, but on that note, you had mentioned a bit about Yang and he's another one who his answers were just so flat because every, everything for him is to be solved through UBI which, I mean, you had, they asked him a question about, like, racial issues, and he was like, UBI, issue about and gender issues, UBI, you know, like, everything is UBI. And ultimately, I mean, how, I don't know, it's just it's embarrassing to me that these are the options we have, and that that's one option that some people consider viable. He's clearly not prepared um, to address any issue beyond his little pet project of UBI, you know? No, he's not. And people who aren't Democrats or people who really have no interest in seeing the party move leftward love andrew yang that's as yeah. a rule whether they're 4chan nazis or not and that was <laughs> legitimately it became hilarious that should have been the drinking game is just whenever andrew yang proposes ubi to something that is obviously better solved through other measures he he said right like you mentioned UBI is the best way to deal with racial tensions, the best way to handle the gender pay gap and sexual harassment <laughs> at work, uh, tackle right. the climate crisis, uh, and then and you know get stuff get tough stains out, which I think is a, a <laughs> an important one. But he also that one gave... might have been a reach. That one might have been. A reach. <laughs> <laughs> he also gave us his normal uh, spiel, which I think is the biggest sort of dog whistle to actual right-wingers that he does about 
you know, it's not left or right, it's forward. And then he'll make a racist joke about himself. Like, mm-hmm. I've seen him do this on, on every mm-hmm. fucking right-wing interview show that he's on where he's like, he'll 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 say like oh you know i'm asian so you know i like to work hard or you know i know a lot of doctors and right uh now it's saying you know uh what what is it now it's oh i'm in the opposite of donald trump is an asian man who likes math and it's like sure making reactionary white people comfortable is 100% of your strategy so i guess you're just going to say that over and over again and liberals kind of think he's smart because he talks about doing the state of the union with like powerpoints to chart americans <laughs> mental health Love powerpoint right <laughs> i mean at least do a prezi you know like get, get a little movement in there i don't know um it looked grad school joke but anyway i just yeah i'm it was very exhausting to watch him because I, i've seen him do interviews that i thought even like, for example, someone who's not super plugged in to just like economic theory, like I have, I have some idea, but like not to the extent of, of like, I don't know, Stiglitz or something, right? Like I'm not an economist, but when I listen to him in some of his interviews as coming at it as someone who's not deeply embedded in economy and economic matters, and then also as someone who's kind of like, not as familiar with UBI, but I understand the basic concept, I think he comes across as very likable and intelligent. Like I remember his interview that he did with the Breakfast Club. I thought looking at it objectively was really good, you know. But then when you mm. see him in debates, he just he has I think he's trying to appeal, as you sort of hinted at, appeal to so many different types of groups. And unfortunately he tends to lean more towards appealing towards what seems like right-wingers and people who maybe have racist tendencies. Um, but it also, I think, undermines the the value of what could be gleaned from what he's saying. You know, like there are some aspects of UBI that could be applied in a more left-leaning way. Um, or certainly, you know, there are some people who support UBI and have talked about it as, especially if you could do it alongside social programs, right? Not as a replacement of social programs, which is what he wants to do. Um, but I think that, that there's some potential there, and he just kind of squanders it at all of these debates, um, which makes me question kind of what his end goal is. Like, do you know if he's trying to get a cabinet position or something? Like, I'm trying to figure out his main objective here, and I don't know what it is. Because he's not going to win as president, but and I think he knows that. But I, I can't figure out. I don't know, and I because I feel like with some other candidates, like you could say Tulsi Gabbard, for example, despite my many objections to many of her um, stances and things that she's done and said in the past, including the recent past, like her um, vote against BDS and um, her vote against the you know Syrian immigrants and things like that. She's had a lot of moments where it's like, what the hell are you doing? But I also can at least say that okay, she has an anti-war message. As serious as she is about that is questionable, but the fact that she has the message is good, right? You can see how that those interjections from someone like her would be important during a debate, for example, when you're talking about foreign policy, which we should get to in a short minute because they didn't mm-hmm. talk about it at all. Um, but with him, I just don't understand what his purpose is. And I'm I'm trying to be, you know, fair here, but I don't I don't get it. I'm not seeing it yet. Yeah, I think if you're being really generous, you could say that he wants to get UBI on the, you know, national debate stage and just get that into somebody else's platform, let's say. But 
I also, you know, think he's a fucking, you know, he's a businessman. He's uh, probably just trying to trade, uh, raise his own national profile. And maybe he gets a cabinet position out of that. Maybe not. Uh, I think he just kind of likes the attention, frankly. And that's why he's constantly trying to, you know, figure out what the, the right formula is for people to, to, to get on the, you know, the Yang train. Um, deliberately not using the correct word for their for <laughs> supporters, but uh, I, you know, I think that he really just likes the attention on some level, and he is saying things that will please people uh, of very different, I think, political and ideological makeups than the the core constituency of, um, you know, anybody that we care about, Bernie or Warren. Mm-hmm. So I know we only have a few more minutes, um, and unfortunately, I'm going to have to give the foreign policy discussion of this podcast about the same amount of time as both debates combined did. Uh, but I'm curious about y'all, like how you all felt about the foreign policy discussion. I just want to open really briefly by saying that uh, I, once again, I was disappointed with their discussion of Central America and what's happening there, um, what's causing the you know mass exodus from the region and into the United States and Mexico. Um, really no one just talked about you know uh, US destabilization of the region at all um, and kind of again paint Central Americans as sort of like inherently violent um, and that we could somehow sit by throwing money at the situation. Um, so again thoughts on that and perhaps thoughts on just overall lack of real discussion of foreign policy and when it did come up what you all thought about it well i think uh foreign policy along with pretty much all these topics really highlighted the importance of framing and uh how the questions and the topics and the discussions were framed and the candidates that were able to uh reframe the questions in ways that fit their their policy was important and then also uh, I vaguely remember uh, that uh, specific, the specific moment, but I think they basically, Bernie's like, oh, I want to get in on this foreign policy question. And the moderators were like, no. And I think that was the biggest favor they did to Bernie that night <laughs> was not let him discuss his foreign policy because most of, most of his supporters, that's one of the main points that they've kind of always had uh, issues yeah. with him. I know me goes all the way back to his support for the F-22 uh, in Vermont and uh, other uh-huh. programs as yeah his job programs in Vermont, uh, that, that was part of it. And, uh, that, that was my main takeaways. Well, I think that it should be said that it's also good that they didn't let Warren talk about foreign policy really in any of the debates and the, you know, in general, I think that Bernie is significantly better than Warren on foreign policy. Um, and Tulsi Gabbard for that matter, but the, Real foreign policy, the meat of the debate, I think, Wendy, you mentioned the the constant references to uh, kind of Central America as I think the important thing about that was that it was mostly brought up as a sort of solution to the question of what do we do about illegal immigration and not as, oh, these are wrongs <laughs> that have occurred and that, mm-hmm. you know, we actually have to, Bernie basically proposed a, a you know, a Marshall plan for, for Central America, uh, but as there, did, as did Castro, sorry, pretty, as did like, ex- mm-hmm. yeah, he explicitly, explicitly called mm-hmm. it a Marshall plan. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And I think that's an important conversation to have outside of purely the context of, well, like, what about that seems to be an alternative to open borders in a lot of cases or open borders inspired policies. Um, so I think that's a problematic pivot. But in general, there's there's a lot of sound reasoning behind framing the U.S. as complicit in uh, the immigration that's happening. I will say that on the second night, there was a bit more discussion. I think it was a record eight minutes of foreign policy discussion. And it started, you know, basically with uh, some discussion of the Iran uh, uh, deal. There was, sorry, no, there, there was basically no discussion of Iran. They brought it up very briefly with fucking Andrew Yang of all people. And he, of course, didn't really have anything to say. They asked him, you know, what he meant when he said he would respond strongly if uh, Iran violated the nuclear deal. And he, you know, basically said, uh, I would de-escalate. I, you know, they were trying to get him to say that he would bomb the shit out of them now. But uh, he would give them UBI. Exactly. <laughs> <give them> UBI. <laughs> and I think the the basic thrust of it was that everybody sort of promised to bring the troops home in some form, some troops from somewhere. And even, you know, Biden seemed to to want people to think that he had advised Obama against the surge in, in Afghanistan. Um, and unfortunately, I think that the the basic tenor of it was captured by Tulsi Gabbard, whose position is you know, end the war is not, you know, because they were wrong, but because, you know, it's been too damn long and we need to be fighting Al Qaeda elsewhere, right? Like you give up on a shit after 20 minutes, you can give up on an initially noble military occupation after 20 years. That is the thrust of Tulsi Gabbard's anti-war stance. And she ended even by saying that Al Qaeda is stronger now than they were on 9-11. Our president, this is verbatim, is supporting Al Qaeda, which of course one knows what she means, right? Like we've supported uh, the forces that became jihadist, uh, you know, anti-government militias in Syria, uh, Iraq, et cetera. Um, but she's also campaigning as being tough on terrorism and constantly bringing up, of course, her military service, right? Like, you know, to, to paraphrase, that famous drill tweet about drunk driving, these regime change wars I volunteered for twice may kill a lot of people, but they also taught me the meaning of patriotism and qualify me to be your president. So it's impossible to say if they were bad or not, right? They should just be over now. That's the conversation that's being had. And I think that's a troubling place for uh, the Democrats foreign policy to be at its left edge, but it is obviously better than where we were during the Obama administration. Uh, and I'm looking forward to Bernie continuing to, to sort of push on this, as well as on immigration, where we're still awaiting a, a plan that I hope will be competitive or even better than uh, Castro's. Especially uh, connecting those in with uh, Sanders and immigration and uh, the kind of theme of Central and South America and uh, all of that, I think. When Bernie, he, he did uh, 
used the rhetoric of strong border protections, but then he turned towards the ending the demonization of immigrants and talked about, you know, people fleeing violence, where I think he he uh, missed an opportunity is to take uh, that stage to try and draw in a short relief some sort of articulation of economic violence and what that means. And that, you know, the violence isn't just the gangs that are, you know, fighting and, and threatening people, but it's also uh, the economic violence we inflict in Central South America throughout the global South, really, and beyond. Uh, and how uh, that how and kind of describe economic violence as a concept for uh, an audience that probably hasn't been exposed to that. And, and I think connecting that helps people understand how you know because with the asylum claims one of the things is is like you're supposed to be fleeing you know uh, danger and so they also say that many of the migrants are actually economic migrants and i, I think with the concept of economic violence you can see that uh, people fleeing dangerous economic situations isn't that different from the the direct violence in that uh it's a uh, a kind of a hopeless future that they're fleeing and more so than an immediate threat and that the kind of distinction with our asylum and immigration and the the people you know trying to pull out the phds from there uh is uh in conflict with i think what was the you know the principle that people like to reference when you know defending their own uh, personal pursuits is you know the pursuit of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness the that line isn't qualified with national borders that that's a, a human concept endowed beyond any sort of national government and so if people want to allege that they believe in that stuff it, that doesn't that means that it applies to immigrants too and part of that means uh the economic violence that we're inflicting on these countries by you know with regime changes and uh, exploitative capitalistic uh, practices uh when they're escaping that uh, they're and they're coming here, they're coming for exactly what we're, we said was the justification for our creation. And for those uh, outside of the country that may buy into more of the, the rhetoric and the propaganda, it doesn't make sense then to come and land in a cage and sit in your own fecal matter for days on end or uh, whatever the situation may be. And that conflict, I think, generates a lot of animosity and makes it even harder for uh, immigrants to integrate into the societies that they come into, into the or in the communities into the United States. Uh, that's also amplified by even on the left the rhetoric of strong border protections. Let's pull out the PhDs and all of that stuff, rather than recognizing the humanity of the people that we're dealing with. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Richard, I know you said you had a question pending. If you wanted to go ahead and ask it as we close. Yeah, and uh, I guess I, we don't necessarily need to answer it in, in total or anything, but it's just something that I've been kind of thinking about and it, uh, having other minds on the left kind of to bounce the idea or the thought off of is helpful. So I, I wanted to take this opportunity is uh, with Bernie and, and his imperfections, do we see do, do any of us or all of us see Bernie as uh, raising class consciousness towards a, a a greater goal, or is there is the the taint 
of his uh, policies, you know, his foreign policy and the, the, the shortcomings of it, are they so uh, negative that he acts more as uh, contaminating potential, you know, socialist revolutionaries rather than inspiring them and raising their class consciousness? Where, where do you, you two see Bernie falling on that based off of his performance thus far? Kumar's? Um, I <laughs> honestly, I'm very much not a pessimist about Bernie in the sense that I don't think that he's going to poison anything. Like, I think that Bernie is and continues to, I think, the, 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 uh, be the, the force that is pushing the, the Democratic Party leftward sort of by hanging out on its border. And you can say that the people who are, you know, composing his movement and uh, the people that have really actually been activists even outside of the, the Bernie campaign proper, but just been pushing the Democrats left are also responsible for that. But it's very important that he's the figurehead at this particular point in time, because I think it's actually allowed there to be a critical mass for a left candidate period and we're talking about things in terms that we didn't used to we didn't even really used to talk about left right divides within the democratic party until a few years ago like during the obama administration none of this was being discussed as like oh obama's policy is too conservative there was nobody out there really saying that and it was limited to people who were activists, people who were particularly paying attention, people who hadn't tuned out like most people did after Obama was elected. And it seems to me like more people engaging with the ideas of, uh, as John Delaney put it, an anti-private sector agenda <laughs> is always going to lead to <laughs> more interesting and logical conclusions. Like, what does that structural change that that Elizabeth Warren is talking about actually look like? Well, if you think a little bit harder about it, you might say it looks something like socialism or social democracy. And personally, there's nothing wrong with even, you know, having a lot of people that support Elizabeth Warren. Like on some level, it's like, why? Why support Warren over Bernie when there doesn't seem to be a huge uh, policy gap anywhere, but even foreign policy. Uh, I think as long as their rhetoric stays pretty in sync, we are going to have an easier time creating a critical mass for a left candidate, bringing these coalitions that Bernie and Warren are amassing together and actually putting forward the, the most progressive ticket in in, in, in U.S. history, well, on the Democratic side anyway. So it seems reasonable to me to project that Warren won't run against the right wing of the party only to turn on Bernie and, you know, endorse them at the end of it. Um, I don't know if I could comfortably support Warren, of course, or, you know, vote for her in California if things are tight, but Bernie is an unalloyed good, I think, for the left, as long as we continue to treat him as a politician who has to be pushed. Hmm. I agree with that. Um, I'm going to sound a little bit more pessimistic than Kumar's did, but I agree insofar as I think 
Bernie served a really important role in terms, he's fulfilled a role, I would say, um, in terms of at least pushing the Democrats left. And I would say even his stances, you know, have been not only lifetime stances, but in large part fueled in the background by activism. Um, and I think that's always really important to acknowledge their work um, that really put things on his agenda, because for example, like he wasn't talking about police brutality and stuff like that many, many years ago. And now he is in large part because of activists like Black Lives Matter and, and people like that. Um, people think cheap dog and um, in terms of just kind of bringing people into the democratic folds only to then encourage them to vote for these establishment candidates like we saw in 2016. But I think 2016 is a different time um even though it was only a few years ago it seemed like it was 20 in terms of where we've progressed in terms of um our rhetoric and things like that and even what we're seeing in the debates um the way that even establishment candidates seem to recognize that they must uh sort of at least signal towards a, a left-leaning uh, set of policies so that can be positive in some ways but i'm also i'm concerned about i guess less about Bernie himself and sometimes what I see among supporters when there are valid criticisms raised by people to his left. Um, and I think when there's valid criticism raised about, especially foreign policy, this comes up a lot, um, and pushback on, I think the ways that sometimes Sanders' policy becomes formalized and accepted without question. Um, and I think it's important for us to continue to push it from the left, which is something you talked about too, Kumars. Um, and he is one figure I think who can be pushed a little bit, at least further than many of the others. Um, but I don't think that Sanders is by any means an end-all be-all. And of course, I'm not saying you said that, but I think some people kind of see him as the, the ultimate and I think this is just a beginning. And my hope is that 20 years from now, we'll look back at this time and say, Sanders was too conservative on some issues. Uh, now we have a president, a presidential candidate who's running, who's a communist, who, who's actually got some chance to win, you know? So I'm, I think in, in that sense, I think he's, he's a good fire starter, um, but we have to make the fire much bigger and we have to go further. Um, and I think, I hope that there's, uh, this is me being optimistic, but I hope that there's an option for that at some point in the near future. That's a good question, Richard. Um, no, I appreciate because... <laughs> those answers. Yeah, definitely. I, I was just going to say that from my perspective, and I guess kind of what I'm I'm projecting or hoping to get from uh, Bernie, more or less, isn't so much from Bernie, uh, but from uh, the people and essentially what I'd like to see uh, Sanders or the next politician that fills that role uh, B is essentially uh, kind of a like like a negotiator in the sense of like telling the establishment and the powers that be that hey this is what these these are the minimum things that you're going to have to change and improve or else they're just going to burn it all down and and you're going to be king nothing you know <laughs> and and there'll be nothing there'll be nothing around but but fire and ash and and you'll be in charge of it but a lot of good that'll do you and so like. Uh, I see Bernie kind of occupying that space is like, uh, th these are the minimum kind of uh, changes that we're going to need to make. Otherwise, society is going to collapse one way or the other, whether it's uh, triggered by the, the fallout of climate collapse or uh, it's triggered by, uh, you know, uh, people fed up with society as it exists and demanding it change. And so uh, 
it being not able to continue to function in the ways as it is like that you're not able to go to work on time every day while people are getting beat in the streets or sitting in concentration camps or uh, getting starved in Yemen or whatever, that people will actually interrupt and prevent the government from being able to continue to operate so long as it's doing these types of things. Right. Um, on that, Kumar, did you have something you wanted to add? I did. I'm very sorry about about uh, all of the the construction that seems to be happening right next door to me. But uh, no, I mean, obviously, I am fully treating this presidential election and really all presidential politics at this point as a way to mitigate harm because we are approaching apocalypse, as mm -hmm. as Richard mentioned, and the you know i will say among the things that that trouble me about bernie obviously i don't you know i, I i'm for put, continuing to push him on the areas where he seems the most obstinate um you know stuff like the reparations i think that it's a, a huge problem that he's so glib about opposing cash you know straight cash payouts and uh you know downplaying republican racism all of these things they're always going to be a problem but he's also of a certain generation and, uh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely hoping that uh, people to his left wield influence in uh, the political landscape of a Bernie Sanders administration. However, with the impending apocalypse in mind, it does make me wish that he hadn't changed his mind on guns, because I think we're going to need the best <laughs> ones, the ones that work real well. You know? President Bernie Sanders, oh. please, please get like a D rating from the NRA. <laughs> on that note, um, on that I'm problematic note. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, yeah, but thank you so much, Kumars, for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Of no, course, it's as always, been an honor, but... honestly. And uh, you've, of course, been on my podcast, and 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 that's been wonderful as well. So I'm happy to return the favor. Sure. Um, thank you, Richard, as well. Thank you it's been all a pleasure. listeners. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, please check in later with us. We're going to have another episode about these dreaded uh, election debates. I believe the next one is in September, if I'm not mistaken. So we at least get a little bit of a break. Um, but we'll be back to discuss that. And of course, as always, other episodes of the Left Pocket Project podcast. Be sure to check us out on Patreon, where you can get lots of free books, free episodes. As always, everything is free with us. Uh, so go to patreon.com slash leftpoc. Also check us out on social media. As always, just search for Left POC and we're there. And of course, Spotify, iTunes, Fleek, Spreaker, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us. And uh, yeah, have a good one. Thanks, y'all.